Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. First, there are now more confirmed cases of the coronavirus here in our state. According to the Arizona Department of Health, there are now at least 44 confirmed cases, with two more reported cases in Yavapai County and Santa Cruz County. Governor Doug Ducey implemented an It seemed like a nightmare. This freezer section nearly bare. Here, produce gone. Cleaning products low. Bleach totally bought out. After sweeping across China and Europe, coronavirus, also known as COVID-19, made its way to America. The nation, like the rest of the world, was suddenly locked in quarantine. Grocery store shelves were barren. Employers laid off their workers by the millions. And life as we knew it was upended. No one knew how bad it would get or how long it would last. Around this time, two years ago, Governor Doug Ducey took some of his first COVID executive actions. All elective surgeries were halted in order to make room for COVID patients. Restaurants were allowed to start serving alcohol on the go. And residents over 65 no longer needed to appear at the MVD to renew their licenses to ensure they stayed socially distanced. Two long, strange, and unforgettable years later, life is somewhat back to normal, but it's a new normal. Many people reflexively carry around masks like they do their cell phones. There are vaccines for those who are willing to take them. A cough or a sneeze makes a lot of people a little anxious. The worst of COVID seems to be behind us and most restrictions have been eased. So today, we wanted to take stock. How have the past two years impacted Arizona? How did this state compare to the rest of the country in its handling of the pandemic? Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. And today I'm joined by two of my colleagues at the Arizona Republic to help us make sense of it all. Stephanie Innes covers health, and Russ Wiles covers business and economics. Stephanie and Russ, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Stephanie, let's go ahead and start with you. Give us the big picture on this, because for so many of us, it feels as though we've sort of been living Groundhog Day over and over and over again. How did Arizona respond to the COVID-19 pandemic compared to the rest of the country? Well, well, it certainly wasn't the first to respond with uh, imposing any mitigation uh, measures. But on March 30th was sort of the biggest um, order that came from the governor's office. I mean, prior to that, there had been some steps taken. There had been a pause on elective surgeries at hospitals. Um, and there had been a, a few other measures taken. But on March 30th, uh, Governor Doug Ducey issued a stay home, stay healthy, stay connected, um, connected directive. Governors in at least 25 other states had already taken similar measures. And he was criticized 
for this measure from some people, including the mayor of Phoenix, who, who thought he deemed too many businesses as essential. However, most people did seem to respond to this um, directive, which said basically Arizonans should not leave their residences except to get food, medicine, and other quote unquote essential activities. So if you say worked for a utility or for transportation that was working during the pandemic, then you could go to your job. But for most people, and I think any of us who was living here in Arizona during that time, we remember there was nobody on the roads, nobody on the interstates. It was eerily quiet and restaurants had closed down. And a lot of people had taken that measure on their own anyway. You know, I know here at the Republic, we were already working from home by the time Governor Ducey issued that order. And I think a lot of other people were as well. Um, so that was the first big thing he did. That order ended on May 15th. Um, and at that point, it appeared to many people that COVID-19 had not affected Arizona statewide in any case. We did have a, a, an outbreak on the Navajo Reservation. But in terms of statewide, it didn't seem like it had affected Arizona as severely as other states like New York and New Jersey. Of course, we now know that that wasn't true at all. And we went through several um, waves of really um, horrific um, infection numbers, deaths. I mean, I remember watching your Twitter feed every day and looking at that death count. Sometimes it was in the triple digits. I mean, really, really scary. Looking back, is there anything that Arizona should have done perhaps differently than what it than what it did? I think, I think that depends on who you ask. But I think of, you know, people who are critical of the state's response, the real pivotal moment, I mean, you know, Governor Ducey was warned in May of 2020 not to reopen the state May 15th, but there were also indications that maybe COVID had not hit this state. I mean, there were even hospitals saying, please unpause our unpause the pause on elective surgeries because we're losing money and nobody's in our hospitals. But there's more of an argument to be made from some of the critics about uh, November and December of 2020, when cases were starting to rise. And I remember one particular week in Thanksgiving of 2020, there was, uh, you know, this multi-state hockey tournament in Scottsdale. There was a huge soccer tournament uh, citywide. There were other, a lot of youth sports tournaments and, you know, there were some public health officials saying, why are you doing this? You know, even if you're outside, um, you know, and we know now that hockey rinks have poor ventilation, and that was certainly not a good situation. But there were, were people saying, well, soccer's played outside. But, you know, these families were driving from California, from Nevada, from other states, going to restaurants, staying in hotels. And a group of, of hospital leaders at one point in early December, you know, just said to wrote a letter saying, please help us to 
the the state health department director because they could see these cases climbing. They were worried about the fallout from all those youth sports tournaments. They did get some some mitigation members measures on that issue, but they wanted more. They wanted a statewide curfew. They wanted a ban on indoor dining. That was happening in other states. And other states were also being far more restrictive about who could come and visit and, you know, recommending quarantine and also really shutting down a lot of these big tournaments. So that seems to be a pivotal moment. One fallout from this and the reason so many people focus on the November and December of 2020 is that January of 2021 was the highest death toll of any month at all during the entire pandemic. And we also know now that Arizona has had one of the highest uh, COVID-19 death rates in the entire country. Was the death rate and or the number of deaths in uh, January of 2021? The statewide surge in the winter of 2020 and into 2021 uh, was our second major surge in the state, and it had a huge death toll, 4,344 lives lost in January of 2021 alone. Unbelievable. Now here we are, mid-March 2022, so we're about two years or so into the pandemic. Give us a sense um, sort of how it started and how it snowballed into what it became. So our first death was announced on March 20th of 2020. And just to take you back to that moment, um, the person had actually died on March 17th. Um, And we later found out that that person was a 50-year-old City of Phoenix employee named Trevor Bowie, who actually didn't know that he was tested positive for COVID. You know, we looked at his Facebook page and he had posted things like, I wish that it was easier to get a COVID test. He'd actually tried to get a COVID test, but the only reason we knew that he had COVID-19 was because uh, there was an autopsy done by the Maricopa County Medical Examiner and they tested him uh, post postmortem. So that's how we knew. So that was, the first death, which was a pretty big moment. Um, Before that, we'd had some other cases. We had our first case, which was actually one of the first cases reported in the country, was on January 26th of 2020. But things didn't really start to get, I would say, scary or bad until March of 2020 when we had the death reported and also, you know, people on the Navajo reservation in northern Arizona were starting to go to clinics there uh, complaining of COVID-like symptoms. And what we later found out was that there had been a religious rally in a community called Chilchin Beto, and that was on March 7th. So typically it takes, you know, five to 14 days for symptoms to be noticed, and then a bit longer than that for people to be hospitalized. So by late March into April, um, you know, hospitals were starting to fill up. And that, just in northern Arizona, though, this was not a statewide surge, but it attracted national and international attention because people weren't, you know, a lot of people didn't even know what the Navajo reservation was, and they didn't realize that people lived far apart from each other, but they lived multi-generations in the same 
home, which put them at higher risk. And also, not all of them had running water. So there was a lot of attention on the Navajo reservation and as a result on Arizona um, during that time. And this all sort of coincided with um, the 2020 election. And you started to see, you know, former President Donald Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence, um, their COVID um, experts, political surrogates really flying in and out of town, um, some mocking the seriousness, severity of COVID, others um, being pretty serious about the situation. Um, And you just really started, really saw the politicization of mask mandates, of vaccines, of um, treating the illness as though it was even like a thing. What do you remember about those days? And what are the implications um, and the consequences really of, of that conversation? Well, so during that time was also when our cases were starting to surge, but there were, you know, it was an election year. And there and Arizona was a hotbed of election issues, and it was also a, a prime place for the candidates to try to shore up more votes. Um, it was definitely targeted for that. And there was one rally I really remember, which was in the Dream City Church. And, you know, it was indoors, and most people in the audience, we sent a reporter, were not wearing masks. And, you know, I've had a public official, health official, tell me that there were several of those that that could have been um, super spreader events because of the way people were behaving. But I think also, um, more importantly, it put into some people's minds that masking was, uh, you know, a Republican versus Democrat issue, which it isn't. It's a public health issue. And I was surprised. I mean, I'm a health reporter and I'm not used to, you know, sometimes obviously with the Affordable Care Act, there's some overlap with politics. Um, You know, healthcare is a huge issue. But I didn't think something like protecting oneself from a virus would become political. That was a surprise to me. How are those conversations playing out today? There's still it's still politicized, um, and people still make comments about masks. Uh, I get a lot of hate mail whenever I write about masks. The, you know, the CDC just revised its recommendations of when you should wear a pub, uh, a mask in public places indoors. So in Maricopa County, we're what's called medium. The last time I checked, they they update it weekly. So we actually aren't recommended to wear masks indoors unless you're immunocompromised or you're in one of the high risk categories, then you should sort of take it, you know, make your own decisions about what to do. But basically, for most of us, it's not recommended to wear masks indoors. Of course, that could change. But, you know, I've been writing about this lately, because it it is a bit of a switch. and, And a lot of the schools now aren't the kids aren't wearing masks. And I, I still get a lot of people writing hate mail, you know, saying, why are you even talking about masks? Masks don't do anything. Um, they, we had a, a newsroom employee and her three-year-old daughter were heckled um, recently because, as we know, kids under five can't get the vaccine yet. So she has her child wear a mask and 
she was mocked in public um, for she and her daughter wearing masks. So, you know, this is the state we live in. That's what's that's what happens. Throughout this, uh, Governor Ducey, who is a Republican, he seemed unwilling to implement real strict, stringent restrictions that were recommended by national epidemiologists. Instead, we sort of seem to have a patchwork of state and local rules that came and went and weren't ever really tightly enforced. How different was Arizona from other states in that respect? Well, you know, well, you know, every state was different. That was one of the things about this pandemic was that it wasn't a national response. Um, Governor Ducey definitely didn't put in as strict measures as many other states, even some of our neighboring states. He always made the argument that, you know, we have a different population here in Arizona and that, you know, he was trying to think about people being out of work and how they would respond to being unemployed if he shut down too many businesses. And he also talked about kids getting depressed, people feeling lonely, domestic violence, that kind of thing. But then on the other hand, you had other states like Vermont, Massachusetts, New York, they were really, really strict. And we also saw from our first surge that once we started to um, re, you know, we reopened the state on May, May 15th, but when we shut it down again a month later, it made a huge difference. There was a CDC report that showed after most jurisdictions put in mask mandates and they paused most businesses from reopening. Um, it was called a pause on the pause. And, and cases went down by 75%. So uh, I think that showed that it worked, but uh, Governor Ducey was always very uh, reluctant to put in any really strict uh, restrictions on people, um, taking away their liberty, and he, he was very against any mandates. We were one of a minority of states that never had a statewide mask mandate. So, you know, it really varied. When you say patchwork, that's true, because it really varied in how different jurisdictions reacted to you know, their their own mask rules and how much it was enforced and how much people complied. In December of 2020, healthcare workers began receiving vaccines. How did Arizona stack up in its vaccinated um, populations? And how did caseloads for the disease, how do, how do they look now? So, so first of all, we're on a downward trend with with disease, which is with infection, which is a good thing. Um, yes, we start our very first vaccine was on December 16th of 2020. And we started our rollout with people who were 75 and older, and uh, first responders, healthcare workers, long term care residents. And that was followed by K through 12 school staff, childcare workers, law enforcement, protective services, uh, personnel and people 65 and older. To make a long story short on that, we're behind the national average in terms of vaccine uptake. So for fully vaccinated people nationally um, of the total population, it's about 65% as of Sunday. Uh, in Arizona, it's about 60%. So, And we're also behind on boosters. And we've been pretty much behind 
for the, well, we have been behind for the entire pandemic. Um, I think there was a, well, I know there was a rush at first to get vaccine because demand was far outstripping supply. And anybody who lived here during that time knows that it was just mayhem with people trying to get vaccines and people over 75 really struggling with the online sign-up process. But um, yeah, Arizona has been behind pretty much the national average and the national average isn't that great to begin with. So uh, that does leave us a little more vulnerable. However, we also had a lot of people get infected. So we do have natural immunity, um, which is, is helpful because I know in China, they're having an outbreak of this BA2 which is a variant of Omicron. But because they're so strict in China, there wasn't a lot of natural immunity. Um, so that may be the reason they're having more cases. I'm not sure. Of the other joyous moments in this pandemic, if you could call any of this joyous, which none of it has been, um, was when children could get vaccinated. What do our... Right, yeah. yeah. And then they could go back to school. I mean, if you were a parent like me, you know, who's a rule follower and I wanted to do this, you know, I took the safest route, what I thought was the safest route for my family. Um, what do our vaccination numbers look like for, for kids? And then separately, like, what are the, like, health consequences of all this for, for, for children? Um, especially some of the mental health um, stressors that they've been dealing with. That's such an an interesting question, Yvonne, um, because the uptake for kids getting vaccinated has not been that great. You know, the last time I checked, but it's been a while since I checked, but it was it was low. It was below 50 percent the last time I checked. And, you know, I actually went out to to a couple of events on the day they opened it to kids uh, ages um, 5 to 11. And I was just really struck by some of the families that were in line. You know, this uh, young girl, nine years old, who had cystic fibrosis was just jumping up and down that she was getting this vaccine. And I think of her now because, you know, her dad was still going to, her parents were still going to keep her home from school because they weren't sure how many other kids were going to get the vaccine. And as it turns out, you know, a lot of kids so far haven't. I, I as I say, I haven't checked recently, but it, it hasn't been as, uh, the uptake has not been as good as, as it could have been. Um, and, you know, there is a bill in the legislature to prevent the state from ever making COVID-19 um, a school-required vaccine. And, You know, it's interesting because the chair of the health committee got up and she said, this isn't a childhood disease, but that indicates a fundamental misunderstanding of how disease spreads. Because, you know, first of all, kids can and do get sick from COVID. And I have profiled a 13-year-old boy who died of COVID. He had sickle cell anemia and he died. He was at home sick, but, you know, because the way COVID manifests, it affected him in, in his blood clots. He clotted, he had a seizure, a brain bleed, and it was too late. He died. Uh, you know, another boy, um, Nicholas Hernandez, was really sick and almost died at Phoenix Children's, and I featured him in a story. So it can affect children, first of all. And secondly, kids live with their parents and sometimes 
with their grandparents or other extended family members, and that is how disease spreads. I mean, when we sat down for this uh, podcast, you said, you know, you mentioned I have kids that are going to school, and that is a way that this virus spreads, um, is kids mingling with each other. The kids may, you know, have a far less chance of getting severely ill with COVID so far in the variants that we've experienced, but they are certainly vectors that can spread disease to others. You've covered public health for a really long time. The policies, the politics, the people um, who are affected by such an important um, part of our daily lives. What was the biggest takeaway from you about um, documenting and really chronicling um, such a historic episode in our global history. I mean, what what's your 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 big takeaway of all this? You know, I'm you know, I'm not sure that I'm in a position that's far away enough from the pandemic yet to make that assessment. I think uh, you know, one takeaway is that I was really surprised that this pandemic was handled so individually, state by state. I was, I was really, it was shocking to me that there wasn't more of a national response to this. Um, you know, having said that, there were definitely individual needs from the states, but, you know, I'm from Canada and I had to go back to Canada partway through the pandemic for a few weeks and I was, um, I was shocked at how shut down they were and how much I had to go through. I even had an interview with a health official before I could re-enter the country and had to have a quarantine plan and, um, you know, a lot of documents to get myself back in there. And then when I returned to Arizona, I needed nothing, absolutely nothing um, other than my passport. So then that was in December 2020. I know, I know the U.S. now requires a little more after Biden got into office, but there was definitely a difference between the two countries. And I will say the last time I checked, Arizona's COVID death rate was three t- nearly three times as high as Canada. And I think that, you know, there is something to be said for mitigation mem- measures and also for a population that will comply with those measures. Um, I, I was not expecting people to be so distrustful of public health, and I'm not blaming that on anybody in particular here in Arizona, but uh, that really stood out for me, the, the amount of hostility that, that happened. And Stephanie, uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? At Stephanie Innes, and that's I-N-N-E-S. For joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's turn to you now. COVID obviously didn't just threaten people. It also wrecked the economy, especially very early on. Governor Ducey, uh, who's a Republican, he tried pretty hard to to strike a balance on public health and um, preserving businesses and allowing them to operate as freely as um, possible. 
How does Arizona compare to other states economically over the past couple of years? I think, I think going into the recession, which was a very steep, unexpected, we probably got a li- hit a little harder uh, than a lot of states, which is not unusual. I think our unemployment rate uh, topped out for the state above like 10%, low single digits, 11 I can't remember exactly. But we have plotted along and we have recovered relatively well. We were one of the first three, I think, three or four states to recover all the job losses that uh, that you know occurred during the pandemic. That came around the end of 2021. But Phoenix Metro, which is, of course, the economic driver for the state, we re- Phoenix Metro area recovered our, our job losses faster than the state overall. So we were, you know, Arizona has been rolling along pretty well. Came out of this recovery quite strong, I thought. How did the employment trajectory here compare to how we were performing before COVID? And do we have any reason to think we have any real clue about what the future holds on that front? Well, I think we are performing fairly well. I mean, we have been a growth state. And most of those growth states have been centered in recent years in the Rocky Mountain region. We're not number one. I mean, I think places like Utah and Idaho have been growing even better than we have. But, you know, we're up there. And uh, in terms of the outlook, I think, uh, you know, we've had these, this inflation scare now. Um, that's been kind of a new something that a lot of people weren't expecting, partly because of the supply chain problems. More recently, oil prices have been going up. Those are national issues. But I think we're, we're reasonably well positioned. And, you know, the economy, we're going to do what the U.S. economy does. We're not going to go into recession if they don't and vice versa. And the economy is like a, an aircraft carrier. Once it's, once it's in motion, it's hard to turn around. So I think right now, even with the, this inflationary uptick and the likelihood of more interest rate uh, increases, we're probably going to, the whole the economy, Arizona and the U.S., is probably going, still looking at a fairly good year uh, in terms of economic expansion in 2022. And how does that translate to everyday Americans' spending in their pocketbooks? Everyday Americans have been spending a lot lately. There's been a lot of pent-up demand. Um, if you've been to one of our bigger malls lately, it's they're crowded. I was at uh, the luxury wing of uh, Scottsdale Fashion Square on Saturday night, and these restaurants, these high-end restaurants, were booked at 9 p.m. with a big crowd. And those are expensive places. There's a lot of pent-up demand. I think it's particularly from the more affluent people. I mean, every every indicator of affluence has been going through the roof. Uh, Porsche sales, Rolls-Royce sales, our newest electric vehicle manufacturer, Lucid Motors, you know, they've started to sell their what comes off the assembly line in Casa Grande at $77,000 a car. Housing market has done very well, up, up end. So there, there's a lot of money out there right now. And people want to spend. They were denied for a year and a half. Uh, you know, what's, what's the term? Um, you only live once. It's a YOLO economy right now. People in the lower end aren't doing as well. But on the other hand, we, you know, they're making more money too. I mean, the minimum wage here in Arizona bumped up to $12.80 at the start of 2022. But I don't know how many people even, even if it's relevant for most people. Because you drive around town, you see that job wanted listings are much higher than that, you know, sometimes $15, $18, you know, fast food. So COVID affected almost everyone's 
jobs across the world a couple of years ago. Some very specific industries, including the ones that you're talking about now, um, particularly restaurants, music venues, they really had to sort of face the daily consequences of the virus um, head on. Many of them were shuttered for quite some time. Which industries have sort of been left critically harmed? And what does that mean for those industries moving forward and for the state's um, economic outlook more broadly? Yeah, well, I think generally speaking, it's been a fairly well-balanced recovery. And I think the question now isn't so much, you know, growth or the lack of growth, but can you can you get the parts, the ingredients through the supply chain that you need? Can you hire as many employees as you need? And I think small businesses, which represent the backbone of Arizona's economy, are hurting more and struggling more than the big companies. I mean, let's face it, you go to a big company, they're probably going to have pay you more, offer better benefits. So I think in general, small small businesses have been uh, hurting a bit, uh, hurting more. How much of that um, do you attribute to sort of the burnout factor that we're seeing among a lot of workers during COVID? Yeah, the great resignation. That's what they're talking about. I mean, there, it's, and that's been a, a phenomenon that's been very interesting to, to follow. I mean, you would think that people would want to work who are available to have jobs, but a lot of people don't. I mean, for whatever reasons, they do not want to, a lot of people do not want to work at least full time. How are businesses adapting to the reality of a disease that obviously isn't fully gone, probably won't be for some time, and an economic landscape that's still pretty challenging? It's a struggle for them. I mean, they they have to um, ensure that their workforce is, is safe, but, you know, they're also dealing with different cross-currents. Some people don't want to wear masks at work or they don't want to even be vaccinated. So there's, you know, there's that dynamic and companies have to be careful, I think, legally uh, without going too far in any direction. Russ, thank you so much. We will see you back here soon to do a deep dive on the economy. Where can uh, listeners find you on Twitter? AZ Money News. That's pretty easy, huh? Thanks, Russ. That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. Before you go, please rate and review our show and share this episode with a friend or two. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Luberto. You can find her on Twitter at Amanda Luberto. That's L-U-B-E-R-T-O. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. You can also follow this show and other Arizona Republic podcasts like Valley 101 and our new bioscience program, The Lab, on Twitter at AZC Podcasts. For The Gaggle... I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.